There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Bibles to, uh, <laughs> please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5, and if you can, please stand when you get that. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse of the Bible from Genesis to Revelations and we are in First Samuel. First Cham- Samuel. <clears throat> That's the Apocrypha. First Samuel chapter 5. And go down to verse 6. The Bible says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What should we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God to Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. There was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the crops of the city went up to heaven. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty. But by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will not be, and it will be known to you why his hand has been removed from you. Then they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and your lords. Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats, that ravage the land, you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? He did mighty things among them. Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows which has never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Father, we are so thankful that we can just be gathered in your presence, and we've had just a great time of worshiping you and a great time of fellowship. And as always, Lord, we now turn to your word 
And we ask your Holy Spirit to do that, which only it can do, and that is to just plant it in our hearts and let us obey the things that we learned today. I ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Welcome back to our study in First Samuel. Since it's been a while with our Christmas break, let, us, let me give you a quick reminder of what has transpired. The Philistines have just won a resounding victory over Israel, and they have captured the Ark of the Covenant and brought it to the Temple of Dagon in the city of Ashdod. You'll recall that the idol of Dagon was half fish and half man, and he kept falling on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. They then set Dagon back up, but the next day, not only had he fallen again, but this time his head and his hands were broken off. You would think that would have been a good clue that perhaps they should get rid of the Ark of the Covenant. But instead, they decide to create a new religious tradition by not stepping on the threshold where their God had lost its head. And that catches us up to where we need to be this morning. But since the toppling of Dagon didn't get their attention, the Lord is about to turn up the heat a little. Look at verse 6 with me. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them, and he struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Look there where it says that the Lord's hand was heavy. The word heavy cannot really be completely translated into English, but we noted a couple weeks ago that in the Hebrew, the word kabod can be translated as heavy or as glory. Remember when the dying wife of Phineas said, Where is the kabod? Where is the glory? Or where is the heaviness of God's presence? Now we learn that in Ashdod, the hand of the Lord was the kabod. And what a contrast between the broken, powerless hands of Dagon as opposed to the all-powerful hand of the living God. So what did the Lord do? Verse 6 says he ravaged them with, well, depending on your translation, you may have tumors, boils, or the King James has emeralds or hemorrhoids, which I'm going to have to address in a minute. (laughs) Sometimes going verse by verse can be a bit challenging. Now, the word in the original simply means a swelling, which fits all three of our possible scenarios. But first, let me say that according to the covenant, the Lord should have sent this affliction on the unbelieving Jews. This is Deuteronomy 28:58. If you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, Then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. He will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. So really, all these swellings, whatever they are, should have been given to Israel But God in his mercy and his grace gives them to his enemies instead. So what are these swellings that we speak of? 
Well, I give you the most popular views, and then the one I think most likely, and why I think that, and you don't have to agree with me. If you want to be wrong, that is totally up to you. Anyway, here's what we know for sure. A terrible plague has come upon the people of Ashdod, and it is impossible to be completely dogmatic about the exact identity of these plagues. Some commentaries think that the people experience painful inflammation of the lymph glands, particularly in the groin. Others think it was a severe case of hemorrhoids because of the translation in the King James of emeralds in the secret parts. But whatever it is, people not only suffered pain and humiliation, they are dropping dead like flies. So whether it is tumors, boils, or hemorrhoids, they are eventually going to make gold-plated symbols of what plagued them. And I don't even want to think about that. That's almost like too much information. I don't want to go there. But you'll never see a bumper sticker with that verse on it. (laughs) So what was this swelling? Now, this is my belief, and once again, it is only my opinion. But it seems to me that when you put all the evidence together in context, it seems that the Lord sent infected mice or rats, which we will see in 1 Samuel 6, 4, among the people that spread a terrible plague. The term in Latin is bubos. And there was a particular plague in the Middle Ages that was a plague of swelling. Fifty percent of everyone who got it died. The bodies of those infected were turned necrotic and then black. It was called the Black Death, otherwise known as the Black Plague, bubonic, the plague of the swellings. Do you know where the bubonic plague came from? It came from a virus that came from a flea that then came from a rat or a mouse, or mouses. Moosin, I think, is the correct term. And, of course, rats came from filth. That is why they thought that the Jews were poisoning the wells during the Black Death because the Jews were hygienic under Levitical law, and so they didn't live in filth. And that is exactly how the bubonic plague started. And so... Out of the filth that you get from your sins, here comes the eventual judgment of God. And by the way, that's how it always is with sin. We may think that we're having a good time, but the whole time we're just going deeper and deeper into bondage with the sin that we think is actually freeing us. It is what the scripture calls idolatry. An idol is anything we think we can't be happy without. Anything other than God that we feel we must have in order to make our life be meaningful and fulfilling. Now, the insidious thing about idols is they are usually well hidden and well disguised. They conceal themselves in the nooks and the crannies of our heart. Now, some of you know that I used to be a drunkard to the point that I would take Bacardi 151 rum into the shower with me in the mornings. I mean, not recently. It's been like almost 30 years. The thing is, the whole time I thought I was really living and enjoying life, but instead all I was doing was adding more links to the chains that was binding me. 
Later on, after I was saved, I read something that could have been just as much applied to me concerning this. It went, first the Indian took a drink, and then the drink took a drink, until finally the drink took the Indian. Know this, my friends, the Lord does not give us guidelines and rules to ruin our lives. He gives them because he and he alone knows what it takes to make a man or woman truly happy and content. In fact, it is those parameters and restrictions that allow us to most fully enjoy this life. One man said, only he who is a slave to the compass can enjoy the freedom of the seas. What he is saying is, although the compass seems to be domineering and limiting, it is only by following that compass that you can safely sail without fear of being shipwrecked or lost. So, too, with life. If we follow God's guidebook, we can truly enjoy life and never have to worry about getting lost or crashing into the rocks. I've said it countless times from behind this pulpit, but doing things God's way is the only recipe for a joyful and a meaningful life. Now back to our account. It's apparent that the leaders come to realize that the plague that they are suffering is due to the presence of the ark in their midst. Whatever the punishment was, it pained and humiliated the Philistines who attributed the suffering to the presence of the ark. Look at verse 7, please. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was, after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Now the experiences described in chapter 5 occurred during a period of seven months, at the end of which the five lords decided it was time to get rid of the ark. They wouldn't admit it, but Jehovah himself has vindicated himself before the Philistines and humiliated their false god, Dagon. The lords of the Philistines say, what shall we do with this ark of the God of Israel? Now, I find it fascinating that the elders of Israel thought the ark of the covenant was the answer to their problems, while at the same time, the lords of the Philistines were sure that it was the presence of the ark in Ashdod that was the cause of their problems. So being good little pagans, they decide to have a committee meeting to decide what to do about God. Eventually, after some sort of debate, they say, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought to Gath. Now, the logic behind this is less than transparent. I would have loved to have known what the Lord of Gath had to say about this. I guess he was just outvoted four to one. But why Gath? Well, we can really only guess. It was the Philistine city furthest away from the east from Ashdod and bordering the Israelite hills, but we really don't know why they chose it. Now, that word destruction in verse 9 can also be translated panic. This could be translated, 
the hand of the Lord was in the city, and the consequence was a very great panic. Now, that word panic derives from the Greek pertaining to the shepherd god Pan. It was he who took amusement from frightening the herds of goats and sheep into sudden bursts of uncontrollable fear. The ancient Greeks even credited the Battle of Marathon's victory to Pan, using his name for the frenzied, frantic fear that was exhibited among the fleeing soldiers. Now, it is worth remembering at this point that these are the same Philistines who called on one another to be men and fight in 1 Samuel 4.9. But now, under the attack of God, they are trembling like frightened children. Now, this time it doesn't appear that there was a meeting at all. They just decided to send the ark to Ekron, which was the next Philistine city closest to Gath. Look at verse 10. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The Ekronites began to protest immediately. Once again, whatever happened to the be men and fight rhetoric? There was now nothing but terrified panic. And this chapter will conclude with the complete capitulation of the Philistines. But the five lords of the Philistines were still anxious to preserve the glory of their victory. If they could somehow prove that this calamity was merely a coincidence, they could retain the ark and continue to magnify Dagon's superiority over Jehovah. Now, the easiest way to do this was to move the ark to another city and see what happened. So they took it to Gath, but the same thing happened. Then they carried it to Ekron, where the people protested and told them to take it elsewhere. God kills a number of the citizens and also sends a terrible plague to the people of Ekron, just as he had done to the inhabitants of Ashdod and to Gath. God had vindicated himself and proved that it was his hand that had destroyed the statue of Dagon and that had brought this affliction to all of the Philistine people. Nobody could truly believe the eruption of these plagues were just a mere coincidence. But the lords of the Philistines still had to figure out how to get rid of the ark without humiliating themselves and perhaps bringing even more judgment upon their land. But just pause for a second and think about how delusional these people are. In our world today, we have the Ebola virus causing all kinds of panic. But what do we do when we discover it? We immediately quarantine the area and all those who could have possibly been infected. But envision if we treated Ebola the same way these guys are treating the plague that is accompanying the ark. Imagine this on the 6 o'clock news. Well, Jane, today there was an outbreak of Ebola in Princeton. They immediately sent the infection to Bluefield, who promptly passed it on to Taswell. Now with sports, here's Biff Jackson. 
Now, instead of quarantining it like we would with Ebola, they cheerfully send it to their friends and their neighbors. With friends like these, who needs enemies, right? Verse 12 says, And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to the heaven. You know you are in hard times when even if you don't die, you are still stricken with boils and tumors. When boils and tumors are a comparatively good thing, it's probably time to examine your life. Now listen, all this happened a long time ago. It is, however, part of a pattern. This is how it is with defiance of God. For a time, people seem to get away with it, and it looks like that defying God is feasible, but it is never feasible. We cannot but hear this story alongside another story, which is about the greatest of all of God's defeats over his enemies. It is when Christ died on the cross. That was a moment in history when it seems like to the world that the defiance of God seems to have gotten away with it. God's Son was nailed to a cross and executed in complete weakness and shame. And when you look at the cross, who is a defeated one? As Jesus was crucified, it was like the ark was once again being taken captive. And at first glance, who was the victorious one at that moment? But early on, on another morning, something will happen in the tomb where they laid him, which will change everything. In the Bible, it tells us that the one who was apparently defeated in actuality was the most powerful victor of all time. Colossians 2.15 tells us this. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly by triumphing over them by the cross. Simply put, to defy God is as stupid as it sounds and often far more stupid than it looks. Take it from me who has done it. Don't do it. Let's now look at chapter 6 and see what happens next. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, What should we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Let's not overlook the fact that verse 1 tells us the ark of God has been an enemy-occupied territory for seven long months. Seven months. Those words put in a nutshell the very great calamity that has occurred for the people of Israel. In the history of Israel, this was a monumental crisis. The brief summing up of the crisis is that the ark is in the land of the Philistines. The significance of this can hardly be overstated. The ark represented the covenant, which was the arrangement by which God was to be Israel's God, and Israel was to be God's people. Now, they had suffered setbacks from the enemies in the past, sure, but no enemy had ever taken the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. Now, it is fairly clear that the priests and diviners of the Philistines really had no sure answer about what to do. They simply advised what should be done if it was decided to send the Ark away. 
However, in biblical narratives, we often hear words that are more significant than the speakers themselves could have even known. And that is the case here. The whole account of sending the ark out of the land of the Philistines and back to Israel contains numerous reminders of the story of the exodus from Egypt. In these words of the Philistines' advisors, there are two surprising echoes, I think, from Exodus. First, the verb send away in itself is the word used many times for Pharaoh's dismissal of Israel from Egypt. It is the word Moses used when he famously said, let my people go. The ark's departure from the country of the Philistines would in some sense be like the departure of Israel from the land of Egypt. Secondly, the Israelites were told not to leave Egypt empty-handed. They were to take gold and silver and jewels from the Egyptians with them. Just so, the Philistines say that the ark must not be sent away empty. They would shortly advise that gold objects of the Philistines should also go with it. Verse 4, please. They, then they said, What is a trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you should make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. You should give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them and did not let the people go that they might depart? So now we see them make little golden replicas of the rats or the tumors or whatever you believe that swelling to be. But uh, none of it sounds good to my ears. I mean, I've seen some really ugly jewelry in my time, but nothing like that. Now, the five golden mice seem to be a surprise, but it seems to indicate that the afflictions of the Philistines was more extensive than was reported back in chapter 5. And perhaps the mice are seen, as I think, as the cause of the plague that they have been experiencing. As I said earlier, it could have been that the plague was something like the bubonic plague that we know is carried by rodents and that shows itself up in tumors or in boils. Now, let's think about this. Here the Philistines find themselves covered in tumors. And what do they do? They make gold replicas of the tumors and the rats. And then the priest says, let's see if these golden replicas will satisfy God. The interesting thing to me is how emblematic that is of mankind. And that it shows the futility of any attempt to get right with God in any other way than the way that God has prescribed. Instead of repentance and a blood offering, the priest tells them, you just go get something that is symbolic of yourself. And these tumors, which are the very thing that is their problem, they are told to take these things and cover it with gold. But what is at the center and at the core of their offering is nothing more than disease, even if if it was covered in gold. And is that not the very best that any person can do trying to get right with God on their own? No matter how much gold we try to cover our efforts with, 
No matter how pretty we try to make our attempts to get right with God by our own strength, we may do some great deeds and have 24 karat gold covering all of our human attempts, how good we've been, how hard we tried, and yet at the core of that is still nothing but gold-plated disease and filth. Later on, the prophet Isaiah will say in Isaiah 64, 6, For all of us has become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, takes us away. What he is saying is, on our own and apart from Christ, the best we can offer is still filthy in God's sight. And the sobering thing is, the best thing the unsaved can offer God is simply the work of their hands. This hymn captures it wonderfully. Not the labors of my hands can't fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin cannot atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. One commentator said that if God has provided salvation, he must overcome the sins of his enemies and the neglect of his friends. It's like at the cross. You will see Jewish men flee and Gentiles mock. It is God alone that can provide salvation. Verse 7. Now, therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart. And put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this very great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by chance. So they come up with the idea of making a new cart. They don't want to take any chances of offending this God anymore. This is a brand new cart. They didn't, they didn't get one from clunkers for cash. They had the impression that this was a very special ark that they are now dealing with. They then take two cows, which have never been yoked, hitch them to the carts, and then take away their calves from them. Now, why would they do this? Now, I don't know very much about cows, other than they are good with A1 sauce, and I know the brown ones give you chocolate milk. (laughs) But the situation being what it was, the cows would probably head to their calves because that was the natural thing to do. They needed to get rid of their milk, and the cows needed the nourishment. But now they say, if the cows go against all their natural instincts, and they leave their young and go straight towards Beth Shemesh, then we know that the God of Israel is the one who has brought all of this calamity upon us. But if not, and I think this next part is hilarious, then we shall know that it's not his hand that has struck us. All of these things have just happened to us by chance. In other words, they're saying, if the cows don't go there, then it just must be a coincidence that Every single place that the ark goes, there's tumors and boils. Rebellion can blind a person to all common sense. 
So, what is going to happen? Will the cows go straight to Bethlehem, or will they wander to the nearest field and begin grazing until they have their young returned to them? What will happen? Come back next week to find out. I'm so excited. Father, we do acknowledge that, uh, as that hymn, Rock of Ages, says, you must save and you alone. And so thankful that you have taken that upon yourself, knowing the best we could ever offer is just filth. And uh, just so thankful for what you've done to us. Touch every person here, Lord. Reveal yourself to them. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.